Let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. We'll continue our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And we'll read the first 17 verses. Genesis 4 verses 1 through, through 17. Now the man, that is Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and, his, and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. And then the Scriptures continue with the children of Cain, but we'll stop there. We come now uh, out of the Garden of Eden, dear friends, and into the wide world as it is, out of Genesis 3 and into Genesis 4. And by this time, the, the world is already uh, somewhat populated. We must not think that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel are the only people alive. Uh, clearly, Cain is worried that when he's... Uh, sent away and cursed that others are going to kill him. So other people are now living on the earth. And, and we are given this, this account of Cain and Abel as it makes clear to us and makes visible, you might say, in a historical, in a live, in color, in full color, you might say, this distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You'll remember that was that antithesis that was given us in Genesis 3. And now you might say we're going to see it. In its ugliness. Because now we leave the perfect garden and we come out into a fallen world. 
So I'd like to consider with you Eve's birth and the, and the expectation, the hope that she gives expression to in the naming of Cain in the first place, in the second place Cain's offering, and in the third place what God teaches in Genesis 4 verse 7 regarding these two options, reflecting what God taught back in Genesis 3 verse 15 regarding the two seeds or the two lines of descendants from Adam and Eve. So in the first place, we come then to Eve gives birth, in verse 1, to Cain. Now, the, the, there's an interesting uh, translation issue here in verse 1 that I'd like to explain to you. Because you'll notice that it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But you notice the italicized text there. Our translators put those words in italicized, the help of, to indicate to you that they are filling in there, right? They're, they're trying to understand the meaning, and they're filling in words there to, to make the meaning more clear. Now, the first thing we can say about verse 1 is that when Eve says, I have gotten or I have obtained, that word there is the same word as the word came. So, for instance, to give you an English example, if I use the verb befriend, to befriend someone, we all recognize that that comes from the noun friend. Right? To befriend somebody is a verb that is based on that noun. Well, in the same way, the word I have gotten, or I have obtained, I have received, that she says in verse 1 there, is the same word as came. If you read it in Hebrew, it would even sound like came. So, so Eve is, is thinking, I have received, I have obtained a child, and she calls him Cain, reflecting that belief. But furthermore, you'll notice that it says man-child. And there I have to, to quibble a bit with that translation because the, the word there is just man, not, not man-child, just man. It is, it's not the word for a child, a baby, or an infant. It's the word for a man. And if you read the Hebrew more literally, it would say something like, and this is, again, this first translation that I give you here, the first way to understand this verse is that Eve says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Nothing, get rid of with and the help of all that. And in, in the Hebrew it says, I have received or I have obtained or I have gotten a man, the Lord, or Yahweh or Jehovah. Now that has led many people to reflect on, the, on, on what appears to be Eve's expectation that just as God said he was going to raise up someone to conquer the seed of the serpent, the serpent, to crush the head of the serpent, that now Eve is giving reflection, is, is expressing her belief that this first child she has received is this divine conqueror that God has given her, uh, the one he promised, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so she names him Cain. I have obtained the Lord. Now that's, that's one way to understand that verse, that translation. Uh, the second way is what the NASB has given us here, our own translation, that I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That's certainly a possible translation as well. With the help of the Lord. And I find it, that most modern translations do seem to to adopt that particular translation. Then in the third place, 
Some have translated this differently. And the translation of I have gotten, they have translated as I have created, which again, that word can be understood that way. It's not nearly as common, but it can be understood as I have created a man with the Lord or just as the Lord has created a man. So there's the idea of Eve reflecting on the fact that just as God created Adam, that now God has given Adam and Eve the ability also to create, not create out of nothing, right? But to create life, new life. And so Eve is giving, uh, is expressing the fact that just as God created a man, she also has now created a man. And that's a possible translation. It's very difficult, isn't it, to, to sort through and to sift through these different possibilities. Myself, I, I prefer to uh, go with the first translation because it sticks most closely with the Hebrew. And that Eve does really give uh, expression here to the fact that she believes she has given birth to this divine conqueror who is going to crush the head of the serpent. So she's thinking back to that promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said to the woman, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, give him a fatal wound. So this is Eve then and her expectation. And you can imagine how, how terribly, bitterly disappointed she must have been when the reality came to be seen that Cain was no divine conqueror, but that actually he himself was one of the seed of the serpent. That must have been bitterly disappointing to her and Adam both. Well, then I move on to my second point here, and that is to consider the offering that Cain and Abel brought. We read in verse 3, so it came about in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So Cain brings his offering, and in verse 4 we're told that Abel also brings an offering. He brings an offering of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And then we're told that God had respect, or the Hebrew here is that God looked upon the offering of Abel with favor. He was pleased with Abel's offering. He was not pleased with Cain's offering. Now the first question I've put there is, how would Cain and Abel have known that? That God looked with favor on Abel's offering and not Cain's. Now we're not told in the story, so then we conclude it's not that important. We know that in some way he did. But it's hard not to speculate that God would have had fire fall from heaven as happened on several other occasions. You can think about Elijah, right, when he was competing with the priests of Baal to offer up an offering uh, to God. And God had fire fall from heaven on Elijah's offering. And that happened in other places in Scripture as well. But again, we're not told. But in some way, God made it clear that he favored and he was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's offering. So then obviously the larger question is why? Why was God pleased with Cain, or Abel's offering and not with Abel's offering. Well, in the first place is, was there something in the manner in which Cain and Abel brought their sacrifice? Now, my friends, it's always important as we try to understand these Old Testament stories to ask ourselves, is this further explained in the New Testament? Is there some New Testament reference where we can go and find our, a further uh, elucidation of the principles that are given us here? And we have that in Hebrews chapter 11. We're very thankful about this. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we read in verse 4, Hebrews 11 and verse 4, By faith, 
Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, or God testifying about his offering, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So we're told here, aren't we, that it was by faith that this was the crucial thing. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice to Cain. And some people have noted that if it was by faith that Abel did this, then it would imply that God had previously revealed to Cain and Abel some instructions for how they were to offer sacrifices to God. Now you know that in the Mosaic Law there were detailed instructions about how to do a sacrifice, how to give an offering. But some people say that if it was by faith that Abel offered, that means that by faith Abel must have believed, right? He must have, there must have been some previous revelation from God that Abel believed by faith and Cain did not. And therefore God was pleased with the manner or with how Abel did it. Cain did it in the wrong way and Abel did it in the right way. And therefore, Abel showed that by faith he believed what God had spoken them concerning the instructions of how to give a sacrifice, and he believed it, and he followed it, and Cain did not. Now, the text itself doesn't really lend itself to that understanding, though. It doesn't really say anything about how Cain and Abel offered their sacrifice. In fact, I think we can say that even Cain must have had some kind of general faith, right? It says he took an offering and brought it to God and offered it up to God. Now, I don't believe that Cain had saving faith, right? But he must have had some kind of faith, right? I think the, the, the theologians would have called it something like a historical faith by which he would have believed that there was a God and that God was the provider of all good gifts, and therefore Cain is going to bring of his own gifts and give thanks to God for his kindness to him. But beyond that, I don't believe Cain's faith would have risen. And then some people have speculated that perhaps since, since Abel brought a sacrifice that would have been a bloody sacrifice, right? It, it involved killing it and blood being shed, that the faith of Abel was not just a general generic kind of historical faith that there was a God and that he was good, but that Abel had also a sense of guilt and of the need for atonement. And therefore he brought a, 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 from his own herd, which involved the shedding of blood. And once again, the manner in which it was brought would have pleased God. Again, I, I, I struggle with that explanation because... The text itself in Genesis 4 doesn't seem to lend itself to that explanation. doesn't seem to say anything about that. It seems very much like Cain and Abel are both bringing sacrifices that in, in, the, in the later Old Testament language would be called a gift offering. Right? Much in the, in the same sense, uh, between, uh, uh, in the same way that we put money in the collection plate as an offering to God. We are giving our thanks to God. We don't put our money as a testimony that we're sinners and that we're finding forgiveness through this offering. Of course not, right? That's not what that offering is about. And it seems that that's what Cain and Abel are doing. They're bringing of their own, whatever it is, Cain is a farmer, a fruit farmer, and Abel is a shepherd, 
and they bring of what they have and they offer it up to God as a gift. Now, again, I don't say that it's impossible that some of these things are true. But at any rate, uh, so is the explanation of some. Now, what about the quality? Now, here I think we have something directly in the text which speaks that Cain brought something of his, of his produce, whereas Abel brought the best. Because you'll note that the text makes that very clear in verse 4. That Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. In other words, the firstborn. The best. The firstlings of his flock, and then it continues, and of their fat portions. In other words, the most choice parts of the animal. Abel offered up to God as a sacrifice. Whereas Cain, we're simply told that he brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So here I would say there does seem to be something in the text that says, or that indicates to us that Abel brought the best of what he had, and Cain, he brought something of what he had. So I do believe there is the difference in the quality of the offering. Then the last one, the disposition. And here I believe that this is the real, the real difference between Cain and Abel's offering. And again, I return to Hebrews 11, verse 4. Those first two words, so key, so important, by faith. My friends, I, I take that not that God had given some instructions previous and that Abel believed them and followed them, but I would say that by faith is simply a general term that Abel had the broken and the contrite spirit, which is a, so pleasing to God, that he had that heart of devotion to God as his, as his Lord and as his Savior and as his God and as his King. Abel was a worshiper of God in spirit and truth, not just a general worshiper of God and a respecter of God as as somebody who preserved life and gave them the blessings of his common grace, right? No, but Abel had a faith in God, a devotion towards him, and a love for him that went farther than what Cain had. And it was this disposition of faith that rendered Cain, Abel's offering pleasing to God, but Cain's was not pleasing to God, not being offered in that true saving faith that is a gift of God to all of his people. So that disposition, I believe, is what made the difference. Let me hasten on into the third point here in verse 7, where now God speaks to Cain. In verse 6, he asks him, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And in verse 7, we have some key teaching from God. If you do well, God says to Cain, will not your countenance be lifted up? Won't you walk with your head high? It's as if God says. We have that expression even in our own language, don't we? You'll have a sense that you're in the will of God. You've done well. You've done what God expects you to do. You can hold your head high. Not in a, not in a, sen a sense of arrogance and pride, right? But in a sense that I'm in the will of God. I'm happy. I'm walking with God in a life of faith and obedience. And if you do not do well, if you step out of the will of God, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, children, I'm sure you've seen the videos of those dreadful African lions, usually the females, right? As they lay in wait. You see them there? Those, those animals, immensely powerful, 
immensely, terrifically fast and terrifically smart on how they lay this ambush. And here comes a gazelle or an antelope or a buffalo or whatever kind of animal it may be, comes tripping along, completely oblivious to the fact that this dreadful beast is lying there. And suddenly it happens, right? The animal flashes out. The beast, the, the prey, instantly realizes it's under attack and it makes it, it flies for refuge. It tries to flee, but it's too late. Right? This, this dreadful animal with its claws and with its teeth carries it down and tears it to pieces. That's the picture you have to have. Because God says to Cain, Cain, if you do well, you may live in peace. You may, you, your face can be lifted up. You don't need to be disappointed. But if you do not, do well. If you sin, then you can imagine your tent being spread here. And just outside the door of that tent, sin is crouching. It's crouching. It's waiting. And the minute you throw that door open and walk out of that tent, it, it pounces on you. It grabs you, holds you down, and tears you to pieces. Its desire is for you, says God. But, says God to Cain, you have to master sin. You have to rule over it, is what it says in the Hebrew. You can't let sin become that, that terrible beast. You have to overpower it. Because if you don't overpower it, it will overpower you in the same way that a beast overpowers its prey. And so God makes clear to, to Cain that there's two seeds. There's the seed of the woman. There's the seed of the serpent. And now we know the distinguishing characteristic between the two. And it's their attitude toward sin. My friends, take careful note of this. Take careful note of this. If you're writing, write that down. The two seeds are distinguished by their attitude toward sin. The seed of the woman does well. They master sin. They rule over it. The seed of the serpent is ruled over by sin. Sin rules over them. Sin has taken control of them. And this is now the distinguishing difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain, you must know this truth. There are two kinds of people on this earth, Cain. There are those who do well. There are those who walk with me in a life of faith and obedience. And there are those who are mastered by sin. Sin has pounced on them. And rather than them fighting against it, rather than them being repulsed by it and pushing it away, putting it to death, they embrace it. They let it into their life. They let it into their tent, as it were. And pretty soon, sin is ruling over them. Sin has taken over them. My friends, I can't help but go back to the Garden of Eden. And when I see Eve standing before that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gives her ear to the serpent, and the lion pounces. The very first sin was no different. That lion pounced on Eve right there and tore her to pieces. Why? Because she gave her ear to the serpent. Instead of being repulsed by it, when the, when the serpent said, you will not surely die, and Eve, instead of being horrified by a direct contradiction to the word of God, she listens. 
She rationalizes. She deliberates in her own mind. And that animal pounced. And all the rest is history, as they say, isn't it? Sin ruled over her. And sin ruled over Adam. And it's only the grace of God coming in that seed of the woman to redeem his people and to call them out of that life of bondage to sin. Well, my friends, this is God's teaching to Cain. And I move to my first point of application, which is really just carrying on what I've already said here about sin. My friends, this is the character of sin in our life. It is like that wild beast. And you know, uh, sin, the, the nature of sin, and I think you'll, you know this, especially the older ones amongst us, is that sin never seems to remain alone. You know, my friends, that cancer would never hurt anybody if it just remained alone. If just one cell turned cancerous and lived and died, no, cancer would be a, nobody would have ever even heard of it. But that's not what it is, is it? Cancer cells never remain by themselves. They multiply aggressively until they do their terrible work. My friends, sin is the same way. Sin never seems to be able just to stay by itself. You tell a lie. And then you need to tell another lie to cover the first lie. Until pretty soon your whole life is consumed with lying and deceit and falsehood. One lie never seems to be able to just stand by itself. When you think about the seventh commandment and the sins of pornography, and how just that one click and then to be done with it. Now, that's never how it goes, though, is it? It goes on and on. It multiplies until pretty soon it consumes your life, destroys your marriage, tears apart your family. It never seems to be able to stand alone. That's the nature of sin in our life, my friends. Look at Cain. Look at Cain. Cain's the perfect example. Because what happened? As soon as he saw that God had respect and was pleased with Abel's sacrifice and rejected his, that anger began to burn within him. And first he lashes out at God. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And then we have verse 7. And and when, when God and he kills Abel, and God says to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he says, I don't know. He lies. Furthermore, you have the murder of Abel. At first, Cain was just angry, maybe jealous. But he was enraged with his brother Abel. And the sin didn't stay alone, did it? It didn't just stay anger. It broke out until one day they were in the field. And by the way, Cain's murder was premeditated. Did you know those, notice those words in verse 8? Look at those words at the beginning of verse 8. Cain told Abel, his brother. Very likely, that means that Cain told Abel, his brother, hey, let's go out in the fields today. Cain made a very gracious, as it were, invitation. Very likely, knowing full well that when he got there, he was going to destroy him. It was a premeditated act. My friends, do you see the nature of sin this morning? I want you to see that very clearly. That Cain started with anger. It started with resentment that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice and was not pleased with his. And Cain, instead of repenting and humbling himself and finding out, God, why were you pleased with Abel's sacrifice? I repent of my sacrifice and next time I'm going to do this better. No. Cain didn't confess his sin and receive forgiveness. 
That was open to him, but he didn't do it. And sin did not remain alone until finally the dreadful day came when he struck down his very own brother and killed him. My friends, what a, what a picture of so many lives of people in our own day. Where it started out with just a small sin. They stepped over the line. But it never stayed there. That cancer began to work. And it grew and it grew. Until to use the picture that our text gives us, that wild beast had full control of him. And bore him to the ground. And began to wreck his life. I wonder how many people whose lives have been wrecked by sin can remember that first sin that they committed. Not one of them ever planned to become what they are today. You can be sure of that. And yet it began. It began. Instead of being repulsed by sin, instead of putting it to death, they listened. They gave the serpent their ear. And pretty soon, that animal had pounced and bore them down. I gave you that quote from John Owen, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Dear friends, if there's anyone here this morning who's trying to play that middle way with sin, you're not killing it, and maybe you think you're not letting it kill you, but you're kind of dabbling with it. You're kind of keeping it close, but not too close. Listen to John Owen. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You cannot cannot do that with sin, my friends. Sin is a cancer. Who would think about doing that? Would you take a cancerous cell into your body and think, I'll just kind of keep it on the perimeter, I'll keep it, you know, I'll keep it close, but not too close? Of course not. Cancer will kill you. John says in 1 John 3, verse 8, He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, that is God, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's the serpent. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. My friends, let us be on our guard against sin. I quickly move to application number two, our offerings. My friends, the point that I'll make here is that every offering we bring to God must be offered in faith. Any offering that we bring to God apart from faith is a violation of the third commandment. It's a bearing, it's a carrying the name of God in vain. Every offering we give must be by faith. By faith, Abel. Right? And if you continue in Hebrews 11, it's by faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. Right on down. Every offering, every dime that goes in that collection plate that doesn't come from a spirit of faith and love to God is obnoxious to God. I gave you that quote from the Heidelberg Catechism there, but what are good works? And notice the very first clause. What are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith. And I'm just going to stop there. Only those which are done from true faith. My friends, think of it. If, a, 
if, if a non-Christian person who didn't believe in Christ gave an offering, why would he do that? Why would he bring an offering? The only possible reason you can think is that a person who is an unbeliever would bring an offering in order to win God's favor, in order to earn points with God. But God detests that. You can't earn God's favor. You can only bring an offering to God because He has already favored you. And therefore you bring it out of gratitude and with a desire to glorify His name. That's the offering that pleases God. Jesus said every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You might say even the good works that a bad tree does are still bad fruits. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And so all our offerings, all our offerings must be offered in a spirit of faith and devotion to God. And then in the last place, Romans 12, verse 1. What is the offering that we bring to God? We don't bring fruit. We don't bring sheep anymore. We do bring money. We do give money to God, right? That's what we do when we pass the plate here. But Romans 12 makes that so much higher. In Romans 12 and verse 1, we read, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is the worship? What is the offering that we bring to God today? My friends, God is satisfied with nothing else than your whole body. And body here means all that you are, your body and soul. And the picture here is that we take our body and we lay it on the altar and we offer it up to God. And that offering, my friends, that living and holy sacrifice, Paul says, is acceptable to God. My friends, is there anything in our life, anything that we desire more than to be acceptable to God? We all know so many areas of our life that are not acceptable to God. We know enough of our own sin. We know enough of those times that we've given into temptation where we've not been acceptable to God. Well, my friends, here is God teaching you how we as Christians, as his people, can be acceptable to him. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die. It cannot bear fruit to God. And that, my friends, is the sacrifice that God is asking, that we die. That means all our own purposes, our own agenda, our own aspirations and dreams, everything that we are, dies. And we come out of that ground a new person, entirely devoted and sacrificed to God. That is an offering that God is pleased with. Isn't that what we started with? I believe this was our call to worship today. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Or do you pull back from that, my friends? Is that too much to offer to God? To take everything that you have, your business, your life, your health, your future, your children, your husband, your wife, everything that you have, everything that you are, and to offer it up unto God and say, here am I, Lord. Take me. Use me. What a radical different orientation that brings to your life, doesn't it? From living for myself, from aiming at my own advancement in life, 
building my own kingdom, as it were, to dying to myself, placing myself on that altar, and offering myself up to God, and saying, here am I, Lord. And uh, what a beautiful quote, an example of this we have from Calvin. You know that when I go past Calvin College in Grand Rapids, there's a, on their sign, their logo, and I have to be honest, I wish Calvin was more faithful to this, but there's a, there's a hand with a heart in it. Why? Because that was the logo, or that was the uh, motto of Calvin himself. He lived by this truth, my heart, Lord, I offer up to you promptly and sincerely. And you see this, this story here, the story behind this quote is that Calvin had been ministering in Geneva for some years, but he was kicked out. The people turned against him and they threw him out. So Calvin went back to another city, to Strasbourg, and he was studying there. He was very happy there. But then things changed in Geneva again and they called him back. They said, please come back and minister to us again. What did Calvin want to do? He wanted to dismiss that immediately, kick them to the curb, those ungrateful people. But what does he say? Well, Calvin's heart was in the hand of God. And so you read there, he wrote back to them, or he wrote this letter to Pharrell. He says, Know then the disposition in which I find myself. If I were free, in other words, if I was doing my own will, I would not yield to your desire. He wouldn't go back to Geneva. He had it good in Strasbourg. He was studying. He was happy. No trouble. It was peaceful. But, says Calvin, recognizing that I do not belong to myself, I offer my heart in sacrifice to the Lord, stripping myself of my own inclination, deliver myself up as a captive into the hands of God. What do you think, my friends, that Calvin would have been happier in Strasbourg? Or happier in Geneva. In Geneva, he knew that he was walking with God. He knew that he was doing the will of God. As God said to Cain, he could walk with his head high. With all the troubles and with all the hardships, he was a captive to the will of God. And if he had stayed in Strasbourg, he would have had peace. He would have had good times. He could study to his heart's content. But there would always have been that pricking conscience saying, are you building your kingdom? Are you building my kingdom? And that's why Calvin, whose heart was offered up to God as a sacrifice to him, said, I will return. And he did return. And he took up his labors again in Geneva and was blessed mightily by God there. My friend, I don't want to lift up the person of Calvin today, but I do want to lift up that faith. I do want to lift up the faith that burned in this reformer and that burned in the hearts of all God's people and that I trust burns in our own heart as well. My heart, Lord. Can you say that this evening or this morning? Do you say that altogether? My heart, Lord. I offer up to you promptly and sincerely. It's a sacrifice. I lay it on the altar and I offer it up to you, Lord. Dear friends, I pray that God would give us that heart and that spirit to make that kind of offering to God, to His glory. May God grant it. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we want to say with Calvin this morning, we want to say, Lord, with all your people, 
We think of our own fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers. How they labored hard for you day after day. Many under great hardship. But every day, Lord, at the end of the close of the day, they could say with a sincere heart, My heart, Lord, I offer up to you. Lord, we offer up our hearts to you. and pray that you would take them and make them your own. We think of our Lord Jesus Christ. We spoke of Calvin this morning, Lord. But ultimately, we want to end in Christ, who said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your word is in my, your law is in my heart. O God, give us that spirit. Break our hard hearts. Break our self-will. Break any desire to go our own way, to build our own kingdom. Help us, O Lord, to advance your cause and your kingdom and to do our work and our calling in this world as unto you and not as unto men. Forgive us, O Lord, for the many times when we have strayed from this glorious vision and when we have thought to offer up ourselves a partial sacrifice to you. This, but not that. To hold back something. Lord, forgive us for this wickedness. And grant, O Lord, that you would receive all that we are and all that we have. That we would die to ourselves and live in Christ. Lord, in his blessed and holy name we pray. Amen.